Hi, this is Ann Latham, author of The Power of Clarity, and you are listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Ann Latham. Ann Latham is founder of the Boston area consulting firm, Uncommon Clarity, Inc. Since clarity is important to everyone, Ann's clients represent more than 40 industries and range from organizations such as Boeing, Hitachi, and Medtronic to nonprofit organizations like Public Television and the National Park Service. She's an accomplished speaker who's spoken to thousands of executives, managers, employees, and MBA students. Ann Latham is author of The Clarity Papers, The Executive's Guide to Clear Thinking and Better, Fast Results, and Uncommon meetings, seven quick tips for better results in half the time, as well as more than 500 articles. Anne lives in New Hampshire and is here to talk about her book, The Power of Clarity, Unleash the True Potential of Workplace Productivity, Confidence, and Empowerment. Welcome, Anne. Thank you, Bill. It's great to be here. It's great to be with you. Tell me, when you were growing up, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? I would have to say my parents. I would have to say my father, by example, taught me how to speak my mind, which got me into trouble more than once because I became very direct and quite blunt, some people would say. And my mother, who by example, taught me to be a feisty feminist at a very early age. The two of them, plus my big brothers, ensured that I always stuck to my guns and stood up for myself. So let's talk about your father just for a moment. What's an example of a way that he taught you to speak your mind? By example, he always spoke his mind. He said all kinds of blunt things, often much to the consternation of other people in the room. At a time when you spoke your mind as a result of his example. Probably my favorite example of that was in my first supervisory class. And it was a week-long class, and I undoubtedly spoke my mind during that entire class because at the end of the class, I was given a certificate, one of those framed corporate certificates. And the only one I've saved till this day was most likely to dispute recognized authority. There's a distinction. (laughs) I don't think anyone else has that certificate. Clarity, like so many other executive objectives, functions, and activities, takes place in what you call the cognitive zone. You say it's where managers especially spend their days interacting with abstract ideas, decisions, processes, without the advantage of tangible action with physical objects, like restocking a shelf or connecting a computer network or welding a support beam. Please say more about the significance of working in the cognitive zone and why clarity is so important when we're doing those activities. That's a good question. If you think about all the process improvement efforts that we've made over the last several decades, they are all focused primarily on the production processes the processes that get the products out the door, whether it's big complicated assemblies or raw products or clothing, whatever it is, or even in a service business, the processes that you use to process a mortgage application or the processes you use to sell insurance. These things have tangible physical objects that you have to move the door to the customer. So all of our efforts have been focused on those production processes and the physical objects and the processes that move physical objects. 
space. Reality is, as you move away from the production processes across to the CEOs who are farthest from production, there are all these people in the middle where the processes are not so well defined. They're not clear. The objectives are not clear. The measures of success aren't clear. That's because those people are moving cognitive objects, not physical objects. They're moving ideas and plans and decisions. And we don't have standard processes for that. If you ask a whole bunch of people what process they use to make decisions, you'd get more answers than the number of people you ask. A question I'm sure you've asked yourself to many managers and teams. Absolutely. They usually go, who needs a process? We just get together and talk. (laughs) We, We figure it out. The reality is they don't do it very well. The reason a lot of meetings go on and on is because people get together and just talk and they don't have a process. They don't even have shared language for how you talk about decisions or plans. In your book, you talk about the importance of meetings and also say that the templates that people use in order to establish the objective for a meeting, who's being invited, what length of time each person speaks during a meeting, what decisions need to be made. You say that is not enough and often misleads people into thinking that they're having a productive meeting simply because it becomes interesting and it becomes varied. Can you talk about what the missing piece is and whether people can add that and improve their meetings or whether they need to scrap it and just start from a different place? Okay, meetings are one of my pet peeves. Meetings are important. They are how we work together. But if you look at any surveys, any statistics, people hate meetings. They've hated meetings for decades. And we keep pouring money into this. We're not making any progress because meetings are still uniformly horror stories. People really just believe that they are a waste of time. The problem is, if you look at all the advice that has been given about meetings, it's all about controlling people. You create an agenda to control people. You take away their cell phones. You lock the doors. You have a big timer. You have a timekeeper. You have a minute keeper who writes all this worthless discussion down. (laughs) Most of it is focused on controlling things because it's as if people get out of control. But the reality, the problem with most meetings is because they begin without anyone determining What must be different when we are done? What will we walk out of that is tangible, measurable, a clear decision, clear plan, a list of ideas that we can then use to release the next step of progress? But instead, we get in there and talk. And the agendas, people say, we have an agenda. And there was a long time there where people say, I'm not going to a meeting unless there's an agenda. But if you look at most agendas, they're filled with what I call treadmill verbs. You've been on a treadmill, you get on a treadmill and you can go forever. There's no way to know when you're done. Words like review, report, inform, communicate, share, update, all the words that you see on agendas all the time are open invitations to talk without a particular purpose, without any way of knowing when you're done. People think they've got an agenda, but unless it's really explicit about we're going to make this decision or we're going to make a list of the decisions we have to make, or we're going to make this plan or list these resources, you're not working towards concrete, tangible things that represent progress. You're just talking and usually about 100 things at once. Often people who are skilled at talking on their feet and saying things in interesting and entertaining ways often become named the leader of meetings 
for that very reason. That's right. What you'd like to encourage people to do who are listening to this and desperately wanting their meetings to improve is to take the structure and just filter it through to make sure there are no treadmill verbs and to make sure that it's clear. <laughs> yeah, that our sense of clarity too vague. Yeah. The point is that you need to be very specific. So that you could recognize, as you said earlier, what will be different after our meeting. We'll have a decision. We'll have a plan. We'll have a list. And that will help us advance the project, the goal, the objectives. What else would you encourage us to do to look at how we prepare for meetings and how we follow up for meetings in order to make them more effective? What are one or two tips on each end? The first thing is really specifically decide what needs to be different when you're done. If you walk into the meeting and you don't know with great specificity what that is, that's the first step of the meeting. The second thing you need to know is how are you going to get there? If you need a decision, you need a decision process. The cool thing about this specificity, by the way, is that once you're clear about what decision you need and the process you're going to use, it starts getting a lot easier to figure out who needs to be involved because you don't need everyone to be involved. For instance, in a decision, up front, you need to decide what the decision criteria are. What's going to guide this decision? How will you a good decision when you see it? Oftentimes, that's a different group of people than the ones who are going to step into the next step, which is what are our alternatives? What might we do? That's different expertise. Sometimes you need higher level senior input into the decision criteria, but you need technical expertise when it comes to the alternatives. So what's your process? Get the right people there. And last but not least, (laughs) another pet peeve is that people know that meetings are a waste of time. A lot of times in order to justify all the time that was just spent at the end of the meeting, they create action items. A lot of times, this is just brainstorming cool things they could do related to the discussion, which aren't necessarily related to the true priorities of the organization. This is a way our to-do lists get totally out of control. This is reminding me of an example in your book of an executive who said to one of his directors just offhandedly, say, would you look into this? In doing so, launched this new director and her team into an activity of researching this to a great deal of detail and depth and investing hours and hours over a couple week period when it wasn't at all what he intended because of a lack of clarity. Can you describe that example and what happened along the way when you came on board and started to help them mend this gap? Yes. So Jess worked for a large regional healthcare company that had hospitals and clinics and involvement in the community and all this kind of thing. It's a good size organization. And she was a brand new employee in the marketing director. She heard her boss say, look into this, which look is really a treadmill verb. There's no way to know when you're through looking. (laughs) So she was so eager to impress her boss that she jumped on it. The thing that they wanted her to look into was putting branded sun cream dispensers in the public parks. So the healthcare company would look good because they were worried about sun cream and the parents taking their kids to the park would be really happy because they forgot to put it on before they left. So it seemed like this wonderful idea. So Jess, the brand new employee eager to impress, goes back to her team. They started diving in to see whether this made sense. They looked at the competition. They looked whether this had been done before, the installation costs, the maintenance costs, the competitive advantage, all these things. At the end of three weeks, they presented their recommendations.
situation. And the boss, <laughs> the vice president, just rolled his eyeballs <laughs> and was stunned at how much time she had wasted because he thought this was the dumbest idea in the world. All he wanted was a gut reaction from Jess so he could tell the other vice president that it was a dumb idea. <laughs> What's remarkable about that example is the colossal waste of time and energy and resources during that period, simply due to this lack of clarity in communication and delegation. You were brought in to help remedy that situation because not only was a loss of time, it was a loss of confidence. It was a loss of reputation as well. Can you address that? Yes. The reason I was brought in is because this vice president hired me because he was really worried about Jess's judgment because she had wasted all this time. So I was supposed to fix her judgment as a coach. So, oh my God. Jess, meantime, figures that she's lost all credibility. She's wasted all this time. Her team has just lost all faith in her because they wasted all this time. All their work went into the trash can. The colossal failure across the board for the team, for Jess, the boss. Meanwhile, they hire me. I come in, figure out what the real issue is, and they still don't get it. The boss is still thinking he might have to fire Jess. No, you made a really stupid request. He wasn't able to take responsibility for his part in launching this debacle. He rationalized his way out of it. It's so sad because it was such an incredible waste. But this kind of thing happens a lot. A vague request, look into this, and the new employee doesn't have either the wherewithal or the courage to say, tell me what success would look like. What level of investment are you interested in here? And so you're offering the questions to equip Jess or anyone in her situation, the kinds of things that they should be asking before they say, got it, because she really didn't have it at that point. What were some of the things that you would ask her or equip her to do the next time that such a request was made, either through this boss or some other boss. Ask those questions like, well, how much time do you want me to invest in this? What kind of timeline are you thinking of? What does success look like? This is that an alternative to my question of what must be different when I'm done? Do you, what tangible thing do you want? Do you want a recommendation? Do you, do you want me to spell this all out for you? Do you want a gut reaction? Do you want me just to say, yeah, good idea, not so much? You've explained in your book a, a framework called SOAR, which starts off with the statement, what's the objective of what's going on? What are some alternatives? and what are the risks? Can you explain how that framework can be used to delegate more effectively and to negotiate to make sure that when you accept a delegation, you have the full picture and can deliver what's being asked, required, or... Exactly. That's a really good question because I've, we talked about making decisions a little bit in meetings before and SOAR is a decision process. And it starts with statement. Statement is, what decision are we actually making? Because the reality is we're oftentimes talking about four or five decisions at once, if we just pick one decision, we're miles down the road. Okay? Oh, is the objectives. So the objectives are those decision criteria. What needs to guide this decision? What factors are important to decision? How will we know a good alternative when we see one? The third step, the A, stands for alternatives. This is where we usually start decisions, by the way. We jump right into the alternatives and say, well, I think we should do this. I think we should do that. They haven't talked about the objective and they haven't decided what decision they're really making. So alternatives, I think that one's pretty obvious because that is where we start. The fourth 
step. R stands for risks. People often always skip this step too. This is where you stop and say, okay, this looks like the best alternative. What could go wrong? If we go with this, what might go wrong? What would make this hard? This is where you uncover the problems that might make you come back and choose a different alternative. That's a process. When we were talking about meetings before, and I was saying, if you want to make a decision, you need to be clear about what the decision is, and you need to have a process. And I mentioned before also that sometimes the people who need to to chime in on the objectives are not the same ones who chime in on the alternative, are not the same ones who can help you with the risks. What I found so important is that you decide the decision criteria in advance, not after you've gone through and made the decision and then you backfill these areas. You establish the statement and objectives, which I'm sure includes scope and resources and all those sorts of things in advance, just so you know what to come back with to help make a decision. So when you're delegating, there are some people that you probably could delegate to and say, this is the decision needs to be made. I'm going to hand you the whole thing. But there are other cases where that would be stupid. (laughs) Like for instance, If those decision criteria, the limitations, the priorities, all those O's for objectives need input from maybe your own supervisor or just from you yourself, different people should weigh in on different pieces. So if you're delegating with some people, you might say, look, these are my initial ideas about the decision criteria. Why don't you flesh that out and let them just take that one step, come back and say, I think we should also worry about X, Y, and Z. This gives you a chance to check in with them, but the cool thing is it doesn't make it look like you're checking in on them. It's not a lack of trust. It's because it's built in advance, which I think is really a key there. What we're talking about is the process here, not the people. So you're saying we want to get step one or step two, the objectives right before we move on. So who else do you think needs to give some input on this? So it's about the process. Who needs to chip in on each step? Who needs to provide input? So then once you've got that, you can then say, okay, I think you can handle the alternatives, but I want you to talk to Joe and come up with a list of alternatives. And as the manager, you can decide whether they need to come back and check with you or whether you're good, your direct report and Joe agreeing on the alternatives. By doing it with a clear process and a bit piecewise, you can be comfortable. They can be more comfortable. You can decide how much rope to give them. It's about the process, not whether you trust them. It keeps the relationship strong and the business objectives are served. You also have an example in the book where a manager said to a subordinate, would you just please review this? Can you share that story? so that we can understand the lessons behind a simple request, but that lacks so many of these important criteria that we just talked about. This case was a manufacturing company. This was a director who was in marketing. This is Peter. And he gave the marketing plan to his boss. It was actually given to his boss. And he asked the boss to please review this. Now, remember, review is a treadmill verb. There's no way to know when you're done. So I was coaching Peter and I was checking in with him at one point one day. I said, so where do things stand? What are you struggling? with now. He goes, I gave my marketing plan to my boss three weeks ago and I haven't heard anything. I guess I should go check in on him and see where he stands. I said, wait a minute, what did you ask for? He said, I asked him to review my plan. I said, what do you need? He said, I need approval to implement. So we went back the next day, asked if he had approval to implement and the boss said, yes. All that time, the answer would have been yes three weeks ago minus the day. (laughs) So while Peter is worrying that one, his boss doesn't care about marketing, so his job's going to be awful with a boss who doesn't care, or losing confidence in his plan, thinking his boss must hate it. So he's, and he's also just losing enthusiasm because his ideas were written down weeks ago and nothing's happened. Meanwhile, the boss has this request hanging over his head, sitting on the corner of his desk. He knows he should review that plan, but what's he supposed to review for? What does this guy think he needs from him? 
if you had been working with Peter and he says, I'm about to send this email to my boss asking him to review my plan. Review sounds like one of those treadmill verbs you keep on me about, Anne. What, what should I do instead? What would you encourage the email to contain so that he got better results? This gets into the cognitive six. My cognitive six, there are six cognitive objects that constitute real progress. If you aren't working towards one of those six, you're probably wandering around. So those six are, one is a decision, which obviously we've talked about the value of that. One is a plan, and we haven't talked about that much, and you have to be careful because planning can be a treadmill verb. Some people can do it forever, (laughs) but it usually has pretty solid components. The third is a problem resolution. So if you have a problem, you need to come up with a resolution. The third one is a little different. It's a list. This gets back to, say, the plan. For a plan, you need a list of what you're trying to accomplish. You need a bunch of lists is the point. You need you know, what you're trying to accomplish, priorities, resources, action items. Each one of those is actually a list. So if you don't sit down to do the whole plan, be sure you're focusing on one of the necessary lists. Okay, so that list is is number four. Number five is confirmation. So confirmation is when you typically go into a meeting and you, or maybe you go to a colleague and you say, well, I've done this and I'm planning to do this next. Do you think I'm on the right track? All you want is a yes or no. What really normally happens is that people start giving you tons of advice. They start giving you advice about step 10, which you're not going to be at for four weeks. They start telling you war stories. They throw all this stuff at you. And all you want to know is, am I on the right track? If the answer is yes, you're freed up. You've made progress. You can move on. If the answer is no, then you've got to ask some questions. The sixth one is authorization or approval. It's like confirmation. It's a yes or a no. Am I approved? Do I have approval to implement? Do I have approval to move forward? It's really very simple. So yes, you should be working towards one of those six. If someone gives you a vague request, you can ask them specifically, should I be working on? Let's go to the specific example of Peter sending the email. What would you urge him to include in the email to make sure that it was effective, powerful, and useful and allowed him to move forward? The question he finally asked his boss, and that is, here's my marketing plan. I'm confident in it. I want to know if I have approval to implement. Do you encourage people to say, I appreciate you letting me know by Thursday noon? Yes, always try to close the gap so it doesn't drag up. But if you ask a specific enough question, you almost always get a faster answer. It's that please review that sits on the desk and just festers. Think of how many things you can review a document for. I've had people come up with 60 because it's going to be grammar, completeness, credibility, effective argument, background information, customer perspective, on and on. It's incredibly vague. Do you have another please review story that could add to our understanding of how this works? Okay. When I was a new employee at a company way, way back years ago. My project manager, whose name was Jeff, this was a manufacturing company that made super cool high-tech computer-controlled hydraulic systems for testing purposes. He came in person, he dropped the letter on my desk, and he says, would you review this, please? It was the same, please review. I mean, think of how often you hear that request. I was young and it had no diplomatic or political bones in my body, so I picked up my red pen and I marked it up because it was terrible. It was ungrammatical, the sentences were incomplete, the flow was bad, and I fixed the letter for him. I dropped it on his desk. He came back and fortunately Jeff was just like the best natured nice man. He came into my office laughing and he said, all I want to know is if this promise in paragraph three to the customer is accurate. So there you go. He wanted confirmation on two sentences, but instead he said, please review. It could have been a really devastating move on my part to mark Mm -hmm. it up. 
that was risky, but you didn't know at the time. No, I just thought this guy really needs help and I'll do it. <laughs> See, I want everyone to think about is looking to take a shortcut. Some people may say, oh, it's lazy or they're rushed or they're too important to lay out those extra sentences, details or structures that are needed to ask for what you really need. But it's imperative because otherwise look at the ways that you're wasting people's time with poor requests. Right. It's sometimes because people are intimidated. They ask those clarifying questions because they think it'll make them look like they don't understand. It's not obvious. They're stupid or whatever. So the best way to do that is if your boss asks you something and you just go, I think that's pretty vague. You don't tell them that's a treadmill verb and that's vague. You might. If they've read my book, you might tell them that's a treadmill verb. Do better than that. If you say, look, so that I don't waste your time or so that I don't go down the wrong path or so that I you know, invest too much in this project, can you please help me understand what must be different when I'm done? What would success look like to you? So like when the guy comes in and drops the letter and I say, what specifically do you need from me in relation to this letter? If I had j- just said that, he would have said, I want to know if this paragraph, this second, this second sentence in the third paragraph is an accurate promise to the customer. I could have said yes right then and there. He would have walked away with his answer instead of getting a bunch of red ink a couple days later. <laughs> and what have you noticed during the pandemic lockdown that's different? Is vagueness being allowed to fester and multiply? Is it being restricted and contained because people are just that much more vigilant about disclarity? What have you noticed with your clients and the, the work that you do week in and week? I think that the first topic is what's different is, oh my God, if we had a little more clarity and a little more specificity, this whole pandemic on a governmental countrywide basis would have gone better because the directives would have been clear. What's expected of people would have been clear. So much room for clarity over the last 20 months or so. But I think the main thing is that during this pandemic that is people have gone remote and they're doing more meetings by Zoom. If there's any time when clarity is even more important, it's when you're operating exclusively by Zoom and by email. The clients who are doing best are the ones who are stopping and zeroing things down. What exactly do you need? And they're finding that clarity, whether it's an email or meetings, and they're they're doing better as a result. But the people who don't have those habits and are still saying, please review, it probably takes them even longer to realize the waste came as a result of it. But the biggest problem with some of these examples that are even worse during a pandemic are that people don't even realize, they don't recognize the waste happened. They don't realize that I should have asked for approval, not a review. They just go, things take longer than it should. People are allowing it to become a standard, a new normal based around clarity and problems with clarity that existed all along. You have many wonderful phrases in the book. One that I want to particularly call out is that you said that motivation and engagement are not prerequisites for clarity, but rather the result of clarity. Can you expand on that, please? So you take any of these examples, take Jess, who wasted all her time coming up with a great recommendation regarding sun cream dispensers. So clarity would have made that a really either could have turned it into a non-issue because she could could have just said, I don't think it's a very good idea. But even if it had been a bigger project somewhere in between, clarity would make it much more efficient and she would have avoided all disappointing her boss, the trust issues, disappointing her team, all those things would go away. And success breeds motivation and commitment better than anything else I know. So clarity just helps everyone work together better, more efficiently, accomplishing more, getting better results. 
And that breeds that, that motivation, that commitment. So I believe that if everyone knows how to play the game and they know how to contribute their best, you don't have the same kind of resistance and problems, although I do go into that in the book too, that you typically have. When you said game, it made me think that one of the things that we often enjoy is watching sports teams compete because the defined success is clear from the start. We all know what it means to foul off when a ball's hit into the foul lines and into the stands or outside of the baselines. We know what it means to hit a serve inside the service box. If a person doesn't get it back within the lines, then that's a forced winner. We see these things because they're not in the cognitive zone, they're in the physical zone where we can actually observe them. So often when we're not making those connections, it becomes difficult to see what success looks like and to help people have that sense of accomplishment of just let's have a catch. You stand where you are. I'll stand where I am. We'll just throw a ball back and forth. And we know what a catch means because we've caught the ball and not dropped it. That's what happens a lot of times when we're asking each other to delegate, to make decisions and make lists. We're asking and the words we use matter because that's what forms the map that we follow in order to accomplish the task and look to fulfill it. Is that an accurate statement from your perspective of working with Clarity? Yeah. If you're really specific about what you're trying to accomplish and you have a process that people understand to get there, then everyone can participate in the steps of the process and contribute their best each step of the way. And they feel good. You feel good. You're communicating. You have a shared vocabulary to discuss it. If there's a problem, you see what often happens, I facilitate a lot of difficult conversations, especially difficult decisions. I'm always, people are amazed that I could take a room full of people who are sometimes at their th- each other's throats and I'll come up, help them achieve a unanimous decision in very short order. They'll feel like a team afterwards. They said, you don't even do team building activities. <laughs> How do you do it? The way I do it, especially because it's often a decision, is that, for instance, you're, you suppose you're making a decision and people start pushing back and squirming and they're uncomfortable with where it's going. And if you're following a process, you're talking about alternatives and they're getting uncomfortable. This is where you can say, look, if you're uncomfortable, there's probably something wrong with our decision criteria. So let's figure out what we're missing because this alternative actually fits the criteria pretty well. So what are we missing? Instead of having, and by the way, if one person in the room is squirming, there's usually a couple others who are uncomfortable as well. Instead of putting them on the spot and making them reluctant to speak up because there's a process, I get everyone else in the room trying to figure out what's missing from our decision criteria. So it becomes all about the process, not the people. As a result, it levels the playing field. It lets everyone play fairly. I have a whole chapter in my book called Playing Cards with the Pope. It doesn't matter who you're playing with if you have a clear process and everyone knows, oh, we're on this step now. And if they jump ahead, you go, okay, we're on this step now. And they say, I think we should think about X. Even if they don't care about X, they can say it because they're contributing to the process. So they can contribute for someone else. They can walk away from responsibility. I just think we should add this to the list. But everyone is on the same side in that kind of situation. They're not against each other. That's right. Because everyone's looking at the process rather than looking to confront each other. Exactly. Are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Absolutely. So at the beginning of the interview, I asked you about someone who influenced or inspired you, and you talked about your mom and dad. When you were a teenager, Anne, what's a song that you loved? Oh, man, I was into classical music. (laughs) It was probably Ina Kleinenacht music. 
<laughs> what instrument did you play? I played a cello. When you think about the ways that you look to spread clarity to executives and team members and nonprofit leaders, what is something that you find to be an essential part of your outreach to make sure that you're always working with the number of clients and the kind of clients that you want the most? Marketing kinds of stuff. How yeah. have you used clarity to clarify your outreach and marketing system? Oh, I see. Okay. So the thing I've done the most is I have written a newsletter since 2005. I've written hundreds of articles. I've written five books. The newest one just came out in July, The Power of Clarity. I So often I'm getting my content from working with clients. As I work with people, I have more and more content to write. And I, I write and I send it out and I publish it wherever I can. I've published it all over the point and I'm an I'm a place and I'm an expert blogger for Forbes. So my whole deal is that my company's called Uncommon Clarity, and we can talk about that if you want, but it, my whole mission is to make this world clearer because I believe it would be a better place. So I've been pushing out free content for a good 16 years now. What would you say is some of the best business advice you've ever received? Oh, it's probably the best business advice, or at least the best I would get is get out of your comfort zone. Just go and do it and don't overthink it. Just do it because I know when I started my business, the first year, I was out of my comfort zone 99.9% of the time. I was an introverted Scandinavian type engineer and getting out there and networking, pushing stuff out there was not really in line with who I was at that point. I changed a lot. But yeah, go for it. There's very little that goes wrong. <laughs> you, you write a bad article, we'll get another article out there. Just keep putting articles out there. And eventually the one that's not up to snuff is just one of dozens, hundreds. What would you say is one of the best $100 or so purchases you've made in the last six months? New hiking boots. <laughs> For business, you mean? <laughs> Not necessarily. Um, new hiking boots. And where have you used them recently? Yeah, I just came back from almost three weeks of hiking in the Swiss Alps. What has been the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped that's led to the most or a personal satisfaction? I would say it's spending so much time at my desk. I have made it a priority to get more exercise and be out and about and putting uh, family fun, friends and uh, fitness first. Let's step out of the lightning round now. Can you expand on the idea that you shared in the book about how there's no such thing as multiple top priorities? Yeah, I learned a while back that priority, it's a Latin word and it doesn't have a plural. So sometime in, a, I think it was the 1950s or something, we made it plural. And it's just ridiculous because obviously your priority is the most important thing. It's the pinnacle. It's the top. It's the apex. So we've created this whole world of priorities. And most people have to-do lists that are just plain out of control with constantly added priorities. Their email adds priorities. Text messages add priorities. It's just ridiculous. So if we could go back to, you can only have one priority at any given time. And if you have more than about three priorities marked down for the day, it's nice to have a backup. So if you can't make progress on your priority, you have something else to turn to if you're waiting for someone or something. But yeah, you only can focus on one thing at a time and you should only have a couple things on your plate or you're too deluded, you're too distracted. You won't make as much progress as you could. I like the way that you also described in the book where you have one priority for a particular area of your business. So you're thinking about what is my writing priority? What is my outreach priority? What are my client project 
what is the client project priority for this client, that client, that'll help move them ahead. We could do this whether we're internal or external in a business. Yes, absolutely. You have shed such clarity and helped us remember the importance of defining our processes that makes work more powerful, effective, and satisfying for all involved. And I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best today. Thank you, Bill. It's been really fun. It's been a pleasure. Before we say goodbye for now, where is it we could go to find out more about you and your work online? My website is annlatham.com. That's L-A-T-H-A-M.com. Ann Latham, the author of The Power of Clarity, Unleash the True Potential of Workplace Productivity, Confidence, and Empowerment. I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.